0: Welcome back to Blazing Trails, I'm your host Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And coming up, we've got episode three of Meet the Customer. Meet the Customer is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360. Salesforce unites all of your teams marketing, sales, service, commerce, and IT around a single shared view of your customer on one integrated platform, and the result? your employees have all the information they need to do their best work and wow your customers at every opportunity. So to learn more about what Salesforce Customer 360 can do for your business, visit salesforce.com slash 360. Now here's Adam Davidson.
1: I'm going to take you back in time, way back in time, 4,000 years ago. Actually, it's 3,882 years ago, to be exact. It's a sunny day in March. We're in the city of Ashur on the banks of the Tigris River in what is now northern Iraq. It's early in the morning. We're in the center of the marketplace. And there are two types of people here, buyers and sellers. Oh, and there's another group of creatures, donkeys. Lots and lots of donkeys.
2: Yes, hundreds of donkeys. I, I imagine that you have the, the noises, the anxious animals that are, that are ready to, to go. They they will certainly feel that there is something uh, amiss here.
1: That's my friend Goiko Barhamovich, who teaches ancient Assyrian history at Harvard. He thinks about those donkeys often.
2: They're heavily loaded, up to the very limit of what they can carry, probably. You have a uh, one person per donkey walking alongside the animal. So if there are hundreds of donkeys, there'll be hundreds of, of humans around. There'll be dogs. There'll be noises. And then the caravan leaves. You would have a trumpet blow or something that signals the uh, departure and suddenly quiet, right? You leave the bustle of the city and you're in the countryside.
1: Glego knows a lot about what went on way back then because of something called the Kanesh archive. This is a collection of ancient documents that were found over the last 100 years in Turkey. They're letters that business people sent to each other, and through them, we get this picture of this amazing period of long-distance commerce.
2: So what we have is about 23,000 texts that have been excavated so far, and the miracle is really that, that that this survives. The closest in any way that we have sort of materials from elsewhere in world history, we have to go to to the Middle Ages in, in Europe and in Cairo to find anything like it.
1: And why don't we have more records like this?
2: Commercial archives are exceedingly rare in history because there would be no reason to preserve such documents for eternity because they're just boring letters and legal records and lists of stuff.
1: For these records to have survived, it had to have been by accident. And it was. 4,000 years ago, well, 3,850 years ago, this city burnt down. It
2: burnt at exactly the right time, in exactly the right way, so as to uh, collapse the houses that stored these archives on top of the archives and in such a way that probably, at least, the archives were inaccessible to their owners for a while and therefore sort of left.
1: So, the fire bakes the clay tablets. Then, later, the citizens return to rebuild their city, on top of those ruins, essentially creating a perfect bank vault for those untouched tomb of documents. On those donkey caravans between what's now Iraq and what's now Turkey, these tablets included expense reports and market research and bread sales.
2: They'll have uh, what do you call it, baker's lists, Adam. 200 loaves, Onida, 25 loaves, Goico, 75 loaves. We have quite quite a number of such texts. And what seems to be going on is, yeah, that they're they're keeping an eye on who, you know, probably they're running a tab at the bakery or something like that.
1: Okay, it wasn't just local bread sales. We see fathers writing their sons, pissed off that they haven't made more money. We see wives writing their husbands. Where are you? You were said you were just going on a business trip. Here is a direct translation. You went to Kanesh, and you said as follows, I will leave within 15 days to come home to you. But instead of 15 days, you stayed there one year.
3: It is exciting to see sometimes sort of the... Yeah, the emotion or the passive-aggressive comments you get in... Uh, it's not all about uh, commodities and, and money. It's also some things about, you know, hurt feelings or um, desperation or loneliness or, or other things. It's sort of a, a glimpse into the human side of, of these traders.
1: That's Aunyet Larsen. She is also a historian of ancient Assyria and runs the Cuneiform Library at Yale. She and Goiko are married. They met studying these texts.
3: It was a very profound experience. I don't know, it was like nature and um, archaeology uh, just all coming together.
2: See, that's the trick. That's the whole difference between those of us who like archaeologists and those of us who like archaeology. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) The primary topic of the texts was trade, of course. Trade over really long distances. The core trade here is textiles, these particularly fancy textiles called kutanum.
3: So we actually don't know very much about how these looked, right? We don't have any preserved textiles. We do have a few um, technical descriptions from the texts, and we know that they can uh, be used for uh, the purposes of, of dressing. Um, so we're not looking at, like, um, Persian rugs or, or things like that. They were probably... Um, pieces of cloth that were used also for dressing. Maybe for other purposes as well, but but that we don't know.
1: What we do know though, is that they were very, very fancy, like crazy fancy. Like one textile took a full year to make and cost the same as a house. These traders in Asher, which is in modern Northern Iraq, would load up their donkeys with these textiles. Each donkey would carry 150 pounds worth, so that's probably 50 or so of these textiles, each one the price of a house. And there are 300 donkeys, sometimes 500 donkeys. This is an astonishing amount of wealth in a caravan.
2: Don't think uh, jeans or anything like that, but think Lamborghinis and Porsches, because that's really uh, the kind of value these objects very often have.
1: So, those 300 men on the caravan, they weren't just there to handle the donkeys.
2: They were armed. And um, I imagine they must have had dogs along because one always does. Also to keep guard at camp at night and things like that. Uh, And they're taking them up to Anatolia, central Turkey of today, and they're uh, selling them for gold and silver.
1: This trip, this donkey caravan, took weeks to get from Asher in northern Iraq to its destination, Kanesh, in what's now central Turkey. It started off nice enough.
2: And the immediate environs would have been uh, irrigated and green. So this contrast, at least, always has been striking to to us, and I'm sure, as I'm sure to you, you know, the, the, the contrast between the irrigated green land and then this sort of very clear border, and then you're just out in the... In the waste, where there's yeah. no water and it's just whitish, grayish, brownish, those colors, um, and you will walk for the whole day. They walk eight hours or twelve hours or something like that. It's very, very dry, and this is the area where they would have run into animals that simply don't live there anymore. If you want sort of the the color of the of the trip, well, this is where you have lions, where you have ostriches. You could come across uh, tiny Syrian elephants, which are sort of a type of mini-elephant, which are gone now.
1: After a week, week and a half of this desert walking, the caravan would hit the mountains. First, the low mountains.
2: That first one is easy enough and pleasant. And that's wine country. That's the, that's the original place for the plant wine. Great. So I imagine they would have had a drink on the way there. And one thing we do know from the texts is that not only are they paying hotel bills, but along the route, there are all these little fortresses, guard stations, guard posts, whatever they are. And when you come to one of those, the caravan will pay the guards very often drinks. They'll pay them wine or beer. In cups, and they get to keep the container that that they receive the payment in.
1: I love the idea that this little beer cup is a crazy valuable payment, but that must have been the case for some guard in a remote corner of the Taurus Mountains. Um, you know, it's like getting, I guess, a souvenir cup at an amusement park, although maybe not quite as fun. So that brief period of wine and hotels, that nice period, that quickly comes to an end.
2: But then when you get into the really high mountains, the Taurus, then then it, it gets uh, trickier. And there are only certain passes that you can go through. And those are the ones that have been used since time immemorial.
1: These trips were brutal. People died, donkeys died. There were bandits along the way. People got eaten by crocodiles and lions. This whole journey, if you did it straight out as fast as possible, would take a full month. But they couldn't go nonstop. The donkeys needed rest. The people needed rest. So they'd do this full walk for six weeks to get to Kanesh. They'd sell those textiles for a fortune and then pretty quickly turn right around and go back. So, six weeks out, six weeks back, 12 weeks of miserable travel just to sell those textiles.
2: There were certain traders who were willing to take caravans uh, from Aswa to, to Kanesh, who were in so economically bad standing that they had to uh, agree to uh, do two runs in one year. And that was considered really horrible
1: once they get to their destination the customer often had a lot of feedback for customer service if there was such a thing
3: what they are looking for up in anatolia is like weirdly specific and so we have letters uh being sent back to usher about tiny details and how the the wives back there how they're supposed to to make the textiles like with with tiny, tiny little changes that, that have to be made mm. in the next uh, batch of stuff that's being sent up there. So, so whoever is buying up there have very clear ideas of what it is that they want. And the merchants have a very strong understanding of what the market is like and what sells and what doesn't sell. And so they are adjusting their mm. uh, production to account for whatever is in demand.
1: Like, Here's a couple letters we found. A lot
3: of them feel like things I've
1: said and done like this week. Um, A husband sent a note to his wife saying, the thin textile you sent me, make more like it. They must remain thin. A finished textile that you make must be nine cubits long and eight cubits wide. I love this, we can see so much there. This is a trader listening to his customers in Kanesh, paying attention to what they want, what they don't want, and making sure that the people back in the home office, his wife, are producing the textiles that are gonna sell. But then, quite a while later, donkey caravan later, the wife replies, as for the textiles about which you wrote to me as follows, they are too small, they are not good. Was it not you, at your own request, that I reduced the size. Isn't that like an email you've sent recently? Wait, you're telling me I did it wrong, but I did exactly what you told me to do. Um, This is exactly why this Kanesh archive can make 4,000 years disappear. These textiles are stylish, fancy garments. And back then, just like now, style would change. It changes quickly. So the traders in Anatolia are writing back to the people weaving the textiles with the latest styles. Because why do people ship things across long distances?
2: Isn't that what drives most trade? I think it is. I mean, very, f- I mean, okay, nowadays we all have to eat avocados and bananas and so on. But I mean, there's, there are very few things that, that we can't get locally that we need in order to survive. Everything else is to make life sweeter. And one of the ways we make life sweeter is through uh, status, conspicuous consumption. And we do have one really interesting tiny correspondence of two very poorly written letters in uh, Akkadian, written by an Anatolian to an Assyrian merchant. And this Anatolian says, his name is Huhari Mataku, I remember for some odd reason. Uh, He has this impossibly long name. And he says to the guy, I am going to be promoted to, I forget what, some high official title. But I really need the, the clothes to go with this. And I need a mount to go with this. He, he is the one of these people who can ride a mule. I need a mule to go with this thing. And and you need to get me that. So they're kind of, they are also, it's a two way street, right? And they are dependent on these merchants for the status symbols that that they need in order to make it in this Hollywood.
1: The traders needed to be incredibly in tune with the ways in which the people seeking vanity and status thought about those garments that they would wear. That is crucial. They are not just carrying goods to sell, they're carrying information, information about their customers. The big point I wanna make is that for nearly all of human history, let's call it for 3,900 of the last 4,000 years at least, business people selling stuff had super intimate, clear understandings of the people who bought the stuff they were selling why they bought them. I don't mean this in some big Freudian way, death and sex and all of that. I mean in a very specific way. These Assyrian traders living in central Turkey studied their customers. They knew who was getting promoted, who was losing a job. They knew exactly what garments these people wanted and why they wanted them. And this has always been the case. Trade, selling stuff across any sort of distance, was always difficult, risky, scary, hard. You would only go through all of that if you knew for sure that you'd be able to sell your goods to someone at the other end for a good price. And that all changed in the 20th century. The world of mass consumption, mass production was a huge transformation. Suddenly it wasn't status-wielding textiles, it was everyday things. We buy Cheap soap, bread, little snacks that traveled halfway around the world for almost nothing. And they're being sold in such quantity that the companies doing the selling couldn't possibly keep track of why each and every one of their consumers was buying the thing they were consuming. You know, it's simple. If you're going to risk your life savings on some garments riding on the back of a donkey for months through deserts and mountains, you're only going to do it if you know a lot about who's gonna buy them and why they're gonna buy them. But if you're selling dishwasher soap to hundred million people around the world, you just can't know that much. Or can you?
0: I'm Michael Revo, host of Blazing Trails from Salesforce Studios, and you're listening to our special series, Meet the Customer, where we dive into the infinite ways human-centered relationships deeply connect customers and companies. And I'm here with Adam Davidson, creator of Planet Money, one of the most successful business podcasts of all time, and the host of our series. Meet the Customer is a production of Salesforce Studios hosted by Adam Davidson and Jane Marie, produced by Little Everywhere. Additional production from Rachel Levin and Courtney Eltinch of Salesforce Studios. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for listening.